0: So i'm going to start with a question this morning. Uh, who is it that you want to see go to hell? Strange question i know right is there Is there anyone that you're just you're just waiting for them to die so they finally just get theirs right It's weird right now it's a horrible thing to hope for anyone, and I would hope that you know. None of us would either hold that opinion of someone or at bare minimum, we wouldn't admit it in public, right? So hopefully when I asked that question like that, no one in the room immediately thought, oh yeah, that guy, I can't, yeah, him. Like hopefully no names came to your mind right away when I asked that question. But we've all had those moments, right? Like we've all had those moments when we just want God to just, just get him. I mean, if you're married, sometimes you've, you've prayed that prayer. Lord, just get my wife. Just just show her that she's wrong so I don't have to fight. You know, I, I know Cody's prayed that prayer about me. Uh, and sometimes the Holy Spirit will answer that prayer and tell me I'm wrong and i have to apologize and repent. Sometimes it works the, the, the other way. We've all had those moments. This morning, we're, we're, we're in Jonah. We're, we're starting this short series in the book of Jonah And we see very quickly that Jonah is himself this guy who's got that attitude. Not about one or two different people who bug him in his life, but about a whole group of people, a whole nation of people. So I'll pray, and then we'll get right to work. Father God, thank you for bringing us together again this morning. Uh, in this in, in this day that has been rough, there are some roads that are tough, and people that are uh, are trying to travel uh, are finding it difficult. So I thank you for bringing us here together to fellowship and to worship you and to learn from your word. I pray that you'd be with those who couldn't make it out this morning, who are uh, maybe stuck in the driveway, hopefully, not stuck on the road somewhere um, without access to help so we pray that you would be with them give them comfort give them warmth and I pray that you would be with us this morning as we seek to praise you and worship you it's in your name I pray amen so Jonah chapter 1 starting in verse 1 and going all the way to verse 16 now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them what shall we do to you for the sea, so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. A crazy story to lead off the book of Jonah. A little bit of background of the book before we get going. The book itself, written probably around 760 B.C., we know that the story of Jonah happened during the reign of King Jeroboam II from 793 to 753 because Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14 as a prophet. So he's in, he's in 2 Kings. We know it's the same Jonah. Um, the book of Nahum, which is right after Jonah, sorry, right after Micah, uh, is kind of a sequel to the book of Jonah in many ways. It kind of d- describes what happens in Ni- Nineveh about 100 years after the events that we're going to go through here this month. Um, the author of Jonah has historically been referred to as Jonah himself, even though the book is written in third person, which is a little weird um, for the time. Most prophets will use the word I, like I went to this place, I did this, I did that. Uh, the book of Jonah uses third person Jonah went to Tarshish, Jonah fled, Jonah did this. Um, it's a little bit strange for an author to do that, but I mean, that's just, we, we chalk that up to, to, to style. That's how Jonah wanted to tell the story. Um, audience was likely is likely this this was kind of a general book of prophecy to god's people Um, probably in the northern kingdom remember this was written during a time when the kingdom of israel was divided into northern and southern Um, so you had like the northern kingdom like the ten tribes and you had judah in the south Um, and and there's a whole lot more around the book but that's kind of just just the need to know for just to kind of give you a little bit of context of what's going on of the details uh, if you want to go over, the, if you want to go over like kind of the, the more ins and outs of it, I'd I'd love to do that. You know, I'm big into the the minute stuff, so come and see me later if you're interested. Uh, but for now, that's just kind of the basic, the uh, basic overview. You know, 50 words or less of what the book of Jonah is. So, verse one: Word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me." That's a common opening. Okay, it's a common beginning for a book of prophecy. It's the commissioning of Jonah into the role of a prophet. Okay, which tells us something about Jonah. He was most likely a faithful Jew. Okay, I'm I'm not going to say he was perfect, got everything right. um, But that's why God chose him, right? The fact that God chose, chose Jonah means that he was most likely a faithful Jew. Now, God had chosen people in the past who were far from faithful, uh, Moses is a good example in Exodus. Uh, but generally when that happens, it's made note of. Like they'll, they'll say, you know, Moses you know, killed a guy and Moses you know, was not a good pub, public speaker, yet God chose him. Anyway, that doesn't happen in Jonah. So we can, we can assume that Jonah was a faithful Jew. Okay. Um, in verse two, what we see is kind of this commissioning of God on Jonah's life. Here's what it is. Get up, go to Nineveh, Tell them to repent because they're evil. That's not to say that God hadn't noticed they were evil before. he just rather that his patience now has run out. So you get up, go to Nineveh, not a Jewish city, and tell them to repent. All right, it's time for someone to tell them to repent or they'll face judgment. Now before we get into what Jonah does after this commissioning he gets... I want to give you a little bit of background on Nineveh. Nineveh is not a Jewish city, right? It's, it's a city in the Assyrian Empire. Eventually, it would become the capital city. Um, the Assyrian Empire is a huge Middle Eastern Empire which covered the modern-day countries. So this is how big it was. It covered Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Iran, Kuwait, Lebanon, Israel, uh, Cyprus, and Armenia. So essentially, all of the Middle East was part of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were known for being absolutely brutal, ruthless, mean, vicious people. They had iron tools and iron weapons, which most of their enemies had bronze still, which gave them a huge advantage um, militarily, in combat, in, in agriculture, in the, just everywhere. If you're, if you're using Iron Age tools and everyone else is using Bronze Age tools, you're way ahead of them. And they're also a traditional enemy of Israel. They weren't friends, they were neighbors, did not get along. In fact, 20 years after Jeroboam's reign ended, a large part of Israel uh, was taken into exile by Assyria. So this wasn't really the assignment Jonah would have asked for. right? This isn't, kinda, this isn't the, the church he would have applied to go be the pastor or the prophet of. Right? Uh, go to your most hated enemy. Tell them to repent or else I will destroy them, is what God says. Now, honestly, who would want that? They're your worst. And you don't want them to repent, right? You want want them to be judged. If I were Jonah, I'd say, you know what? No, that's fine. You go ahead and you destroy them. I'm going to get some popcorn and watch from a safe distance, right? Like nobody wants that job. But that's the assignment that God gives Jonah. So here's what Jonah does. Verse three, Jonah rose, good start to flee, not so good, to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, we presume that Jonah knows he can't get away from the presence of God. We presume that he knows God is everywhere. We, we assume he's read the book of Job. He's familiar with the story of Job. We assume he's read a lot of the Psalms that you know, pretty clearly say you can't run from God. What most commentators believe when Jonah says this is that his intention is not to get away from God's presence, in a sense, but rather to get away from, from this commission. Essentially, he's saying, if I go far enough away, maybe God will choose someone else to do this job instead of me. So he's trying to get away from this commission, get away from this job he doesn't want, because he doesn't want Nineveh to repent. It goes back to my original question who do you want to see go to hell? you were to ask Jonah the question he'd say Nineveh he'd say the Assyrians I don't I don't want to see them repent I want to see them die so Jonah flees gets on the boat goes the opposite direction tries to get as far away from his commission as he can it doesn't work out so well verse four but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship threatened to break up so Jonah bugs out leaves town God's in a word displeased with jonah 's decision sends a massive storm down on the ship he 's on the boat's being tossed back and forth. Everybody, everybody on board thinks they 're going to die in this storm. They, they start throwing out Hail Mary prayers to their own kind of like their own household gods, uh, the gods of their occupation. Just any God they can think of they 're just going to throw prayers out and hopefully one of them will hear them and stop this storm that doesn't work the captain of the ship goes looking for whoever it is on board who's not praying just in case and who does he find but a hebrew prophet ironic that a pagan guy uh, a pagan captain of a ship who's praying for his life finds a hebrew prophet asleep in the hull of a ship during a storm Um, So they cast lots to find out who it is they should be talking to or blaming for the storm falls on Jonah. Verse 8, they ask him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where's your country? What people are you from? They ask him all these questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What are you doing here? What's going on? Do we blame you? Should we blame you? Tell us about yourself. And Jonah, to his credit, gives him a straight answer. He answers honestly, because Jonah knows what's going on. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The sailors are praying to all of these kind of minor household gods that, A, don't exist, and, B, were are not very important. And then they come to Jonah and say, hey, who's your God? Why aren't you praying? And Jonah says, well, my God's the guy that made the heavens and the earth. My God's the guy that that made the land and the water. He's the God that made everything out of nothing. And the sailors are just flabbergasted. Like, you're not praying? (laughs) This is your God and you're not praying? Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. It's not in the story, but we learn that Sometime before verse 10, Jonah had told the sailors, maybe around a meal or something, like, you know, why are you getting on this boat? Why are you? They're just sharing stories. Jonah says, well, I'm fleeing my God. And that's, again, when you're dealing with a pantheon of really small, kind of insignificant, comparatively powerless gods compared to God Almighty, um, that's not, A, an unlikely story. Someone's kind of fleeing their God. And B, it's not really a big deal right because if you flee your god's kind of area of influence then he can't really touch you when they find out that oh wait a minute you're worshiping the god who created everything go south so he told them this story he's fleeing the presence of god they don't know who this who his god was yet they just kind of knew he was fleeing the presence of god hadn't told them that his god was yahweh yet could have been any god not a big deal um All of a sudden, they get into this big storm. Jonah's God is now very important again. Who's this God you worship? Who's this God that you're running away from? Jonah answers, well, he's the God that created everything out of nothing. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God of the Israelites. Oh, well, that changes everything all of a sudden. So verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do? What do we do? That the sea may quiet down for us. And the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Well, oh, you worship the God of all creation. Well, how do we appease that God? How do we get him to stop being mad at our boat? How do we stop this storm? This isn't a, a, a question that's born out of faith. That comes later. This is a question that's born out of fear and self-preservation alone. Right? Jonah knows exactly what they need to do because Jonah knows exactly why this storm has come on them to begin with. Verse 12, he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knows the score, knows his plan has failed, God's not going to relent, not going to pick someone else. He knows he's disobeyed God, Jonah knows he's acted unrighteously, he's acted sinfully. And Jonah being a, a righteous, faithful Jew knows what the penalty for that is. He's familiar with the story, Jonah knows the storm is God's judgment on him. So Jonah knows that the way to stop it is just to be thrown overboard. Just get rid of me. Now, human sacrifice is not a big thing in the 8th century BC. It's no longer kind of a, a, a common practice anymore. It's, it's kind of fallen out of favor. Certainly for the, for the people of God, obviously. Uh, but for the people around them either, human sacrifice wasn't a popular thing anymore. It was, you'd hear stories, but it wasn't common. So to the sailor's credit, they tried to get him off the boat without killing him, to their credit, right? You get this, I this picture of them rowing and rowing and just not working out. But maybe that was a part of Jonah's plan to begin with. Maybe that was part of Jonah's plan to, was to die anyway. Right? Like, I, don't, I don't want to say for certain the guy was suicidal, but maybe it was part of Jonah's plan that if I'm dead, I don't have to go to Nineveh. Right? If I'm dead, I don't have to tell those wretched people to repent. In fact, I'd rather be dead than have to do that or see it happen. So maybe it's all part of Jonah's plan. Thankfully, it's not a part of God's plan. Verse 13, nevertheless, men rode hard to get back to dry land. Couldn't do it. The sea was too tempestuous against them. So To their credit, the sailors tried to get to save Jonah's life. When they figured out that it wasn't working or it wasn't going to work, here's what they did. Verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Hold on. These sailors have just spent an entire afternoon praying to a bunch of false gods and idols. And now who are they praying to? God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. That's a big deal. These pagan men are praying to our God now. So what are they asking? O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're acknowledging God's sovereignty. It's a big deal for these, for, for pagan sailors. It's interesting. They're almost asking for forgiveness. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased. That's dramatic. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Pagan men fearing the Lord. Making, uh, offering sacrifices. Making vows. That's the kind of language we use in the Old Testament when we're talking about conversion. That's the kind of language we use in the Old Testament when we're talking about people getting saved. Interesting that an act of disobedience on Jonah's part might lead to active repentance for this group of men, however large or small they were, to come to faith in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and in the promise that God made. And we don't know for certain what happened to these men. Right, after Jonah left the boat and after they made their sacrifices and their vows, we don't I mean, maybe they just added our God to their pantheon and, and worshipped him that way wrongly, or maybe they didn't. Maybe they became God in the Old Testament. Maybe they were grafted into Israel. We won't know until one day we meet them, or don't. But it's it's very interesting to see that you know out of this act of disobedience god can still bring about good god can still be worshiped so again i don't want to say with certainty that these sailors were definitely transformed and saved because there's no way we can know that but for the rest of the morning let's let's operate under the assumption that they were right this is the big dramatic thing in their life they're they're on a boat they're going to die A prophet of the Lord says, throw me overboard and you'll live. And they do. And as soon as he hits the water, it's calm. The wind is nice. They can get to where they're going. No one's going to die anymore. Like that's a big event in your life. That's the kind of thing that could change your life. So let's operate under the assumption that they stumbled off that vessel, fearing the Lord, made their sacrifice, made their vows, and then went to find someone who would... Teach them how to worship this new God of theirs. And let's pray that the first thing they learned was the first commandment. (laughs) I am the Lord your God. You will worship no other gods but me. And they took that personally and they did that for the rest of their life. Let's let's assume that happened. Because today in the age of the New Testament we have a word for that. It's called discipleship. If these men were truly converted then they would have sought out discipleship. It's one of the most important facets of the Christian life. It's a huge part of the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28 doesn't say, therefore, go and make converts of all nations. It says what? Therefore, go and make, help me out, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That teaching, that's discipling. That's how you make disciples, We're not called to make converts. That's not our job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We're called to make disciples. That's a much longer job. Right? Being convicted of your sin doesn't take very long. The the Holy Spirit does it. You're convicted. You feel the weight of it. You hear the gospel. You feel the weight of it gone. You're a Christian. It's over. After that is discipleship. And that's the rest of your life. Men on that boat, these sailors, however many there were, needed to be discipled. They needed to be taught how their new God both desired and deserved to be worshipped. They needed to learn how important it was for their, no, sorry, to their newfound faith to be generous and to be caring to outsiders, to be generous to sojourners. Right? That was a big part of the Hebrew faith because, because of the exodus. They had to understand how important it was because of... Because of Israel's journey out of Egypt, how important it was for them to now care for, um, um, house, feed people who are on long journeys because Israel was cared for by a lot of people on journeys, right? They needed to learn a lot of things about how, how this newfound faith in Yahweh played out. They needed to learn the sacrificial s- system. They needed to learn the laws, all 10 of the the, the commandments, Right? The same is true today. When we become Christians, we need to be discipled. Because sanctification is a long process. Becoming more Christ-like is a process so long, it's lifelong. Which makes sense. We're not done being discipled until we're just like Jesus, and we're not going to be just like Jesus this side of eternity. So sanctification and discipleship are a lifelong process. These men, these sailors needed to meet good men of God who would teach them how to now worship their new God. The same is true of us today. Discipleship is a critical need within every church. Because gone are the days when you can just hand someone a Bible tract and walk away out of their lives and trust that at least a handful of them will become Christians and become fruitful. It doesn't work like that anymore. right? Interpersonal relationships now are different. It's ironic because so many people have so shallow relationships with other people because of things like Facebook and the internet. Right? You can have such a shallow relationship with someone. But people want that deep relational depth when it comes to this kind of subject, when it comes to how you live your life, who you worship. People want to know that you care about them as people, not as projects, not as evangelistic targets. People want to be in a relationship with you before they'll even talk about religion anymore. Believe it or not, I think that that's a good thing. Because when you have a relationship, when you have that relationship with people, when they do become Christians, it's a whole lot easier to jump into, the, into d- discipleship because you already have that bond, that friendship, that relationship. Discipleship is something that everyone who's a Christian does, or at least ought to do. Right? You'll notice that the Great Commission is not for pastors. Right? The Great Commission is not for church leaders. The Great Commission is for all Christians. Pastors and church leaders included. Right? Jesus didn't say your leaders will go out and do these things. He said you will go out and do these things. Great Commission is the mission statement of the church. And the church is everyone who is part of the body of Christ. The Great Commission is, is, it, it, it bears weight on how I live my life. and It should bear weight on how you live your life as well. Discipleship, I believe, is a natural outpouring of fellowship and Christian relationship. Now, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's easy, right? It's not. It doesn't mean you don't have to be intentional, because you do. But it's what naturally comes about when you, when you fellowship correctly, when you care about each other, when you love one another, when you bear each other's burdens like the Bible tells us to. Right? When you pray for one another, when you serve one another, when you love one another. All those one another's in the Bible. When you do those things, discipleship comes out naturally. These men, these sailors needed to be welcomed in fellowship and discipleship into the Hebrew community. Otherwise, their newfound faith, which needed to be nurtured, would have quickly faded and died. Perhaps it did. But that's what discipleship is. Every Christian needs three people. In their lives. Everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Timothy. And everybody needs a Barnabas. We'll end with these three. Okay, First, Paul. Everyone needs a Paul type figure in your life. Here's what I mean by that. Paul was a great discipler. Right? Took these young men who wanted to get into leadership. Wanted to get into ministry. Um, Paul took on guys like Timothy. Uh, guys like Luke who traveled with him. Um, Mark to a lesser extent. Right? Paul wrote, you know, guys who wrote, I mean, Luke wrote half the New Testament. Mark wrote, wrote a gospel. Paul was their teacher. Paul was their trainer. Paul was kind of in a Jewish sense, Paul was their rabbi. He discipled them. He trained them up. Every Christian needs someone in their life who is Paul to them. Right? Someone to learn from. Someone to kind of teach you how to become more like Christ. Someone who's further ahead than you in the journey. Not necessarily in age, right? But further ahead than you in Christian maturity. Further ahead of you than you than in Christian character. Maybe in age. I mean, maybe you're 60 and you've been a Christian for two years. And there's a guy who's 40 who's been a Christian for 20 years. Listen to that guy. <laughs> right? But everyone needs to have a relationship with someone who's further along the journey than they are. Call him a teacher, call him a rabbi if you want, call him, you know, call him your Paul, call him a mentor. Everyone needs someone who functions in the same way Paul did in their life. You've got to have that. If you don't have that, you'll never grow, you'll never learn, and you'll just stagnate in your faith. Nobody wants that. I've got a Paul. He's a pastor at a different church. We get together monthly, and we just talk about things, and he disciples me, right? Right? I'm sure he's got one too. If you want to move and grow in your faith, you really need to have a Paul. Someone who can push you gently, lovingly, and someone who can stretch you and teach you so that you can become more like Christ. Secondly, if everyone needs a Paul, someone to learn from, then everyone also needs a Timothy, someone to teach. In essence, you are your Timothy's Paul. That might sound strange, but if you, can, if you can teach something to someone while you're being taught that same thing, that sounds weird. But remember, your Paul should be further ahead than you are in your journey. And you're just simply further ahead of the Timothy in your journey. Right? You need someone to teach because people often say you don't really understand something unless you're able to teach it to someone else. You need a Paul, someone to learn from. You need a Timothy. Someone to teach, because you need to be able to pass that knowledge and wisdom that God's giving you to someone else. You teach the next generation of Christians, you teach the next generation of believers. If you're a parent, I mean, a natural Timothy is your kids, right? But you need to find someone that, as you're learning, you're teaching as well. You need to pass that wisdom along, because it's got to go somewhere. Lastly, everybody needs a Barnabas. Barnabas is fun. Right. Acts chapter 4, we meet a man named Joseph. That, that's his real name, Joseph. Uh, and he's given a nickname by the apostles. They call him Barnabas. Right. And the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So Barnabas was an encouraging person. He was a, he was a booster. Right? He's the, the kind of guy you want to be friends with. You always want to be around someone like a Barnabas because he can single-handedly just raise the mood of a whole room if he's there. We all need one of those too. Sometimes more than one Barnabas. Everybody needs a cheerleader in their corner. We all need someone who's at the same level. You need someone further ahead than you to teach you. You need someone who's not quite as far ahead as you are, so you can teach. And you need someone who's the same level, so you can encourage each other. You can pray for each other and encourage each other. Generally speaking, you're Barnabas. You won't learn from them and they won't learn from you. Right? these are these are friends who encourage us, pray for us when you know we we call them when we need to 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 talk you know I use the phrase lightning rod sometimes right my my Barnabas is a lightning rod. We have this agreement where i can I can call him and I can rant and rave and get mad and yell and just just unload on everything that's bothering me and weighing me down and keeping me down. I can just unload on him like a lightning bolt. And as long as I tell him I need you to be a lightning rod for a minute, he's not going to judge me. He's not going to get mad at me. He's not going to call out the fact that when I'm doing that, I'm probably sinning against a lot of people that I'm angry at for no good reason. He's just going to listen and let me unload. And then he prays for me. And usually, right after that, I realize on my own, the Holy Spirit convicts me on my own of my sin. But you need a Barnabas. You've got to have that safe person to go to. And they're not going to talk about you. They're not going to say, oh, well, so-and-so said this to me about you, and he's mad at you. They're not going to do that. They're just going to encourage you. They're going to pray for you. They're going to be your lightning rod. They're going to be your Barnabas. They're going to encourage you. Right? Right? A natural person for this is your spouse. To be a Barnabas, not a lightning rod. Okay, if you're if you if you like this idea of a lightning rod, someone you can just rant on, and they'll, that's not your spouse. That your lightning rod is someone else. Okay. Frequently, you're going to be lightning rodding about your spouse, so don't make them the same person. That that's not good. Um, it's got to be someone kind of of the same gender, right? Because there's that temptation as well, especially if you're. Mad at your spouse, and you go to your lightning rod, who's of the opposite gender. And you understand me so well. You've you, you've listened to me for so long, and this isn't working. And that pull—it's got to be the same gender. But you gotta have a Barnabas outside of your spouse, someone who can encourage you, pray for you, love you, take care of you, and you do the same for them because you're on the same plate. You're in, in the same place. It's not someone you have a responsibility to teach. And it's not someone who feels like they have a responsibility to teach you, but an equal who walks beside you. This is true of us, just as it was true for those sailors in the boat. They had that experience. They saw God work. I mean, come on. You're in the storm of your life. A Hebrew prophet who worships the God of, who created everything tells you that. Tells you he's fleeing his God. Tells you that to stop this storm, you've got to get rid of him. So you throw him overboard, and he splashes, and the waves stop. That's going to have an impact on your life. But it's not going to last if you don't have people around you who worship the same God, if you don't have those people who are, who are ahead of you, who are di- discipling you, who are with you, who are encouraging you, and who are behind you, who you're discipling. They had that experience. They saw God work, and now they need to see God's people work to teach them, to learn from them, and to encourage them. We need that too. You got to go out. You got to If you don't have a Paul, you got to find a Paul. And and preaching ministry is not that kind of relationship. Don't 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 say I go to church on Sunday so the pastor's my Paul because I listen to him preach. That doesn't count. It's one-on-one sit down, talk, get things through, go through a book together if you're a book person, right? Talk about your lives together and then let them speak into your life. Let them say, you know what, I I see this in your life. I see this kind of pervasive thing, this pervasive attitude that you've got that might be a little bit sinful. Maybe repent about that and and pray about that and get beyond that. Let them, give them the freedom to do that because it's, it's not for their benefit, it's for your benefit and for God's glory, right? You need a Barnabas, someone that you can be really close with. Some that you can you can they can carry your burdens with you. And you can carry their burdens with you. Right? I've I've got a friend who's a, who's a Barnabas to me, and, and right now he's the last couple of years he's been going through just hardship after hardship after hardship. Just things are not going his way. Things aren't going well. He's having trouble, you know, finding a job in his you know in, in, in his field. And he keeps telling me he's like, look, I, I I feel bad. I keep dumping this stuff on you. And I said. Bro, it'll turn around one day, and I'll be dumping stuff on you, and, and I won't feel bad. <laughs> so. That cheered him up. And you've got to find a Timothy, because you're learning all these things. You're learning from your Paul, and you're being encouraged by your Barnabas. You, you, you don't just keep that to yourself. You've got to give that away. So you find a Timothy, someone who's further back than you, someone who's a newer Christian than, than you, and you... And you Get to know them, form a relationship with them, and then you become that person who says, Look, I see this thing in your life. And it's not godly and it's not biblical, and, and maybe you need to think about repenting of that. If you do it right, and if the relationship's there, they'll know that you're not doing it for your own good, you're doing it for their good and for the glory of God. That's good. We all need that. We need to go look for that and we need to find it. For for our good, for God's glory. Let's pray.